The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, you welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're bringing you an episode from The Vault today. This is part two in our series on throwing behavior in non-human animals. Uh, This originally published January 4th, 2023. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on throwing behavior in animals. Now, in the previous episode, we uh, we focused almost exclusively on allegations from a paper published uh, toward the end of last year in 2022 about octopuses uh, throwing stuff or at least appearing to throw stuff deliberately at one another. Often not just stuff as in like hard uh, singular objects, but like fistfuls of sand, just trying to throw (laughs) the silt right in each other's eyes. Yeah, yeah, uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, Octopuses playing dirty. But uh, I had been looking around to try to find a good ancient myth or story that centered on the act of throwing, because it just seemed like there would be such a thing, right? Like a throwing contest between the gods or something like that. And I think this must have been a common set piece since time immemorial. I'm sure there are examples like that, but I couldn't find a good one for today. However, I did want to talk about a myth that draws an interesting connection between an act of throwing and the origin of humankind, or at least the present lineage of humankind. And that is the Greek myth of Deucalion and Pyrrha. Now, this one's not ringing a bell for me. If my son were around, I could uh, perhaps he he knows this one. But yeah, this is not one that uh, that uh, that instantly springs into my head. Well, settle in. It's a good story. Uh, right. So 
the, the version of the story I'm going to reference is the one told in Ovid's Metamorphoses. So this is uh, going to include some some Roman flair on the on the Greek myth. Uh, Ovid, of course, was a first century BCE uh, Roman poet, and this is from his Metamorphoses, Book One, translated by Brooks Moore. Now the context of the uh, of the story is that it's sort of the Greek or Roman version of the great flood story that we know from from other ancient texts that we know from the Hebrew Bible that we know from the uh, from the epic of Gilgamesh and so forth so uh, in this version after the primordial ages and the origin of the gods and the giants and humankind the gods look down on earth and they're like it stinks human <laughs> humans are awful disgusting evil uh, there's a particular incident that really makes the gods upset where this vile king Lycaon tries mm-hmm. to make Zeus and the gods do cannibalism to test their mm-hmm. omniscience. So he kills his own son, cooks him, and tries to serve him to Zeus to see, like, is Zeus going to know that this is my son? Hilarious. Yeah, I definitely remember Lycaon. Uh, we've talked about him before. Yes, yes, he has come up. So Zeus or Jupiter decides he's going to destroy the world with a great flood, and he does. It's brutal. Uh, apparently, only two humans are saved from from the flood, and they are from the region of Phocis. They are a pious married couple named Deucalion, uh, who is the son of Prometheus, and Pyrrha, who is the daughter of uh, Epimetheus. Now, they survive the deluge, I think, on a little boat, and they end up beached on a mountaintop. It might be the top of Mount Parnassus. But anyway, they end up stranded on a mountain. The floodwaters recede, so they survive, but the rest of humanity has been destroyed. So what are they going to do now, now that they're all alone? And because they are a pious couple, they decide they should ask the gods for help. So here I'm going to start reading from the, uh, the Brooks Moore translation of Ovid. And after he had spoken, they resolved to ask the aid of sacred oracles, and so they hastened to Cephisian waves, which rolled a turbid flood in channels known. Thence, when their robes and brows were sprinkled well, they turned their footsteps to the goddess Fane. Its gables were befouled with reeking moss, and on its altars every fire was cold. But when the twain had reached the temple steps, they fell upon the earth, inspired with awe, and kissed the cold stone with their trembling lips, and said, If righteous prayers appease the gods, and if the wrath of high celestial powers may thus be turned, declare, O Thamus, whence and what the art may raise humanity. O gentle goddess, help the dying world." Okay, so they turn to the gods for help. They go to the temple of Thamus. Of course, all the fires have gone out because it's been flooding and it's covered with reeking moss. So the temple's even nasty now, but still they're going to kneel down and kiss the stones of the temple to show how how holy they are. And they, they ask Thamus for help. And Thamus replies. So the, the poem goes on. Moved by their supplications, she replied, Depart from me and veil your brows, ungird your robes, and cast behind you as you go, the bones of your great mother. Long they stood in dumb amazement. Pyrrha, first of voice, refused the mandate, and with trembling lips implored the goddess to forgive. She feared to violate her mother's bones and vex her sacred spirit. Often pondered they the words involved in such obscurity, repeating oft, and thus Deucalion, to Epimetheus's daughter, uttered speech of soothing import. 
Oracles are just and urge not evil deeds, or naught avails the skill of thought. Our mother is the earth, and I may judge the stones of earth are bones that we should cast behind us as we go. Oh, okay. So some some uh, textual interpretation coming in here. All right. So basically, the world has ended. They've come to the oracle. The oracle, and they say, Oracle, what should we do? Oracle says, you need to take your robe off and throw your mother's bones around as you go behind you. Right, but Pyrrha doesn't like this. So, yeah, th- uh, I think I, I think if I'm interpreting this right, when they're saying Oracle here, they're talking about the goddess Thamus speaking to them because I think mm. uh, th- this would not be a human Oracle at this point. Right, right. But yes, uh, Thamus, I think, or whoever is speaking the Oracle here, I guess it's Thamus directly, says, yeah, take your mother's bones, throw, uh, wear your clothes loosely, ungird your robes. <laughs> so kind of just like, uh, you know, sag your robes around and throw your mother's bones behind you. Pyrrha is like, I'm not, I can't do that. My mother's, but that would be really impious. And I'm especially pious. But Deucalion has the solution. No, no, no. This doesn't mean your mother's bones. It's a metaphor. Our mother is the earth and the bones of the earth are stones. Makes sense. Okay. They, the Oracle could have been a little more clear from the get-go on that, but, but fair enough. Agree. So the poem goes on. And although Pyrrha by his words was moved, she hesitated to comply, and both amazed doubted the purpose of the oracle, but deemed no harm to come of trial. They descended from the temple, veiled their heads, and loosened their robes, and threw some stones behind them. It is much beyond belief were not receding age's witness. Hard and rigid stones assumed a softer form enlarging as their brittle nature changed to milder substance till the shape of man appeared imperfect faintly outlined first as marble statue chiseled in the rough the soft moist parts were changed to softer flesh the hard and brittle substance into bones the veins retained their ancient name and now the god supreme ordained that every stone deucalion threw should take the form of man and those by pyrrha cast should woman's form assume so are we hardy to endure and prove by toil and deeds from what we sprung so they do it they throw the stones and what do you know it works all the stones pyrrha throws become women all the stones deucalion throws become men and I, I like the moral here, the fact that the new generation of humans, I guess the present one surviving, emerged from stones in this telling is why humans are are so rough and ready. Like humans can get things done. They're, they can do hard work. They can, they can really take a beating and, and keep on going. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And I think there might be some kind of interesting... Uh, evolutionary prescience in this story about the, the the present generation of humans arising from an act of throwing stones, because I think you could make the argument that throwing stones or throwing uh, uh, items fashioned out of stone is an early human technological advancement that is pivotal in the the uh, arising regime of technologies and behaviors associated with those technologies that create human culture. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I hate to keep going back to the um, the introduction to 2001: A Space Odyssey, uh, <laughs> but we have discussed it a lot, and we've actually had an expert on the show <laughs> to uh, to discuss it with us before. But um, yeah, I mean, even in that uh, uh, presentation, we see the idea that uh, yes, the the use of tools 
has a melee application, but also a ranged application. And our ability to throw things at threats, perceived threats, other individuals, either as a direct weapon or as a communication of intent, uh, mm-hmm. is, is an important part of, of human technology and the, the advent of human technology. But while some of the uh, most notable examples of non-human animals throwing are found in primates, Rob, I think you wanted to get us started today by talking about elephants, right? Yeah, yeah. Elephants were one that jumped out at me because I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by elephants, but I hadn't really read much about their ability to throw things. Uh, so I, I dove into this a good bit. Now, um, I, I want to advise everyone that I am going to get a little bit into the history of war elephants in this. I'm going to try not to dwell on any of the, you know, the gory details, but war is inherently cruel and monstrous, and warfare involving animals is, is, is also cruel and monstrous, um, and at the same time, fascinating. So yeah, I, I, I realize I'm something of a hypocrite on this myself in that I, I spend a certain part of every day horrified and fearful of warfare. And yet, um, you know, ancient warfare is, is a fascinating topic that I keep coming back to and actually find, find peace in, in, in studying and reading about and then uh, covering on the podcast. So, so there you go. Well, please tell me more. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
So elephants have long been reported to throw things. Uh, they've been seen to throw rocks at other animals. Uh, there's even at least one case in when uh, an elephant was able to, to fatally uh, hit a human in a zoo environment. This was in Morocco back in 2016. You can look up uh, news reports on this if, if you want to see more. Uh, but even in the wild, there are some uh, there's some Im- impressive footage that you'll find online of, say, I think there's one of a of, a, of an elephant in Africa throwing a rock in the direction of a rhinoceros uh, near a waterhole environment, you know, where there's a lot of uh, interspecies interaction and standoffs. Uh, there is also uh, footage uh, I was looking at of a, an elephant. Again, this was an African elephant throwing a branch at a uh, at a at a, um, a tourist who is out in a jeep uh, to observe the elephants and the the elephant is essentially i guess saying i don't really want to be observed right now here have the branch uh, of a small tree uh, so they definitely can throw things when they want to throw things and you can certainly break down a lot of why they're throwing things you know there are there, as a communication as a as an actual an atta- actual attack uh, you know some sort of expression of, of aggression uh, a lot of what we talked about regarding uh, the octopus is very much in play here now uh, in trying to picture this act of throwing I'm assuming it, it is done with the trunk generally. Yes. Yeah, definitely the trunk. Um, And all of this really, anytime we're in in talking about elephants throwing things, this is all just a subset of a larger study of elephant tool use that's been going on for quite some time. Uh, uh, Multiple studies, uh, multiple observations. There's a lot of interesting data out there concerning not only aggressive use of branches and rocks wielded or thrown, but also the use of sticks or branches in grooming thermoregulation, and fly swatting, um, something that Charles Darwin apparently commented upon as well. Fly swatting, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So there are other things too, like the manipulation of branches to weigh down fences so as to cross over them. Uh, And sometimes there there may be examples too of them retaining certain sticks uh, for for use as a tool. Um, So, you know, not sticking in their pocket or anything, but, um, but... behavior that seems to indicate that once a stick is useful, they may hang on to it for at least a little bit in order to keep using it. So it's not just a, it's not like this kind of random interaction, like, oh, there happens to be a stick in my trunk. Oh, well, I can sympathize with that because I, I'm, when I find a good stick, you know, not all sticks are equal, <laughs> that some sticks are way better than others. And when you find a good stick, you kind of don't want to let it go. Oh, yes. One especially sees this in uh, in children on walks. Once they find a good <laughs> stick, they absolutely don't want to put it away, even if they keep almost hitting people in the face with it. So anyway, as far as elephants go, though, one of the more interesting ideas out there, however, is that tool use in elephants emerges primarily to contend with thermoregulation and parasites, uh, basically parasite control. Uh, both of these are important because the elephant, of course, basically has has no hair. It's a, it's a furless creature. And we tend to think of elephant skin as, as thick and hard and sufficient protection against flies. But this isn't quite the case. Pain and blood loss from flies seems to be sufficient to provide for the natural selection of swatter usage. Mm-hmm. So being able to pick up a stick, small branch, etc., and using that with the trunk to swat away these troublesome insects that, again, are messing with uh, the expansive skin of the elephant that is far more sensitive than you might give it credit. 
and the elephant has limited abilities to shoot the, those flies. It has the tail. It has you know, expansive ears, of course. Uh, but mainly, it's depending on that trunk. And you can extend that trunk via tool use, via a small branch or stick, and use that to swat away the flies. Now, this is swatting, not throwing the stick at flies. That I don't think really would necessarily make sense. And I've yet to see anything about throwing as being a direct part of either activity, thermoregulation of their, their expansive skin or uh, regulation of parasites. Uh, so I think it's one of those things we might see as sort of a side skill to all that, an add-on skill that comes via the, um, the, the evolution of this amazing trunk and all the abilities of this trunk, as well as just their, uh, their ability to use tools. Yeah. Well, you can imagine throwing as, um, as at least possibly on a continuum with the extended reach you get from a tool. So, you know, mm -hmm. by picking up a stick, you in effect, make your arm longer. You can hit or reach at something farther away than you can with your biological arm. And then if you could release that stick at just the right time, it could fat could in fact go even farther. Yeah. So the basic ability here is not at all surprising. The elephant trunk is a highly tactile proboscis composed of some, 40,000 muscles. This is a frequently cited number anyway, though I, I do see some different figures out, ba out there. But any way you shake it, whatever the number happens to be, it, it dwarfs the sum 650 muscles in the human body. Well, maybe just because I have them on the brain, but I, I almost want to compare the elephant's trunk to an octopus's arm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a lot to compare there, just in terms of how much ability there is for the, uh, for, for the trunk to move around. Well, I think I'm also thinking about that because there are no bones within the trunk. Mm -hmm. So like our arms and fingers have bones in them that make them rigid along certain, you know, axes of motion. Whereas the elephant's trunk has no bones at all. It's uh, it's a mass of like muscles and fat. So it has a, a kind of uh, almost octopus-like, I mean, not truly, not truly octopus-like, but uh, more in the octopusy direction uh, in a range of motion and kind of floppiness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the papers I was looking at uh, for this uh, section is from Scott L. Hooper in uh, 2021 edition of Current Biology, a paper is titled Motor Control, Elephant Trunks Ignore the Many and Choose the Few. In this, Hooper writes, quote, the elephant trunk is a muscular hydrostat with essentially infinite freedom of movement. Now, the paper itself here, as the title suggests, explores how the elephant focuses on certain ways of moving the trunk to achieve various objectives. Again, this is interesting because unlike with something like the human arm, the possible movements are far less restricted. Like you say, it's it's not like an arm where you have, yes, the, the human arm is amazing in what it can do and the range of motion that it has, but still there are limitations in place just based on how it is constructed, uh, the bones, the ligaments, etc. Like you can't bend your forearm in the middle of your forearm or you can't build, bend your elbow backwards. Right, like it would be interesting to see a list, like all the possible ways you might move your arm in all of the like the the, the 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 small differences, all the different ways you might scratch your nose. <laughs> however many methods you come up with, however many movements you're able to decipher, the elephant and that it is just is going to have you beat every day. Like there are just so many more ways for it to potentially move its trunk. Right. 
And uh, this was really interesting. In the paper, uh, the author points out that when control for body and brain size, elephant cerebellums are physically much larger than expected, and that 97.5% of elephant brain neurons are in the cerebellum. Uh, This is a part of the brain that is, among other things, associated with fine motor control and movement error correction. So they point out that, quote, it is tempting to hypothesize that this extreme hypertrophy is due to the greatly increased motor control challenges a muscular hydrostatic trunk poses. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin. I've last on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So anyway, in general, though, there's a great deal that an elephant can do with its trunk and many things that it does far more often with said trunk. Uh, But clear throwing behavior, again, has been observed. They're perfectly capable of throwing branches, rocks, and in cases of hostile interaction, uh, yes, other organisms, including people. Oh. One question that ended up coming up for me, though, 
is can they throw arrows? And um, I, I hadn't thought about this, There's a, but I ran across this interesting passage in Plenty of the Elders, The Natural History. So if you have your Stuff to Blow Your Mind, Plenty of the Elder punch card, please go ahead and uh, put another star punch through there, and you're one star closer to your um, gigantic hoagie. So um, I'm going to read from Plenty here. Quote, uh, and just as a reminder, Plenty, of course, uh, first century CE Roman author. Uh, that we've discussed many times on the show. Quote, the first harnessed elephants that were seen at Rome were in the triumph of Pompeius Magnus over Africa when they drew his chariot, a thing that is said to have been done long before at the triumph of Father Liber on the conquest of India. Prosilius says that those which were used at the triumph of Pompeius were unable to go in harness through the gate of the city. In the exhibition of gladiators, which was given by Germanicus, the elephants performed a sort of dance with their uncouth and irregular movements. It was a common thing to see them throw arrows with such strength that the wind was unable to turn them from their course, to imitate among themselves the combats of the gladiators, and to frolic through the steps of Pyrrhic dance. After this, too, they walked upon the tightrope, and four of them would carry a litter in which lay a fifth meaning a fifth, fifth elephant, which represented a woman lying in. They afterwards took their place, and so nicely did they manage their steps that they did not so much as touch any of those who were drinking there. Huh, so I have a kind of mixed reaction to that. On one hand, I think it's quite clear from you know modern examples that elephants can be trained to do all kinds of interesting things. They are intelligent animals, and they have a very adroit uh, uh manipulation ability through their trunk. And yet I'm, I feel kind of doubtful when it says this thing about the arrows that they are able to throw the arrows with such strength that the wind was unable to turn them from their course. I, I guess I'm imagining from that statement, though it doesn't directly say this, that it's like throwing arrows as if into a target. So actually aimed so that they go tip first and hit something, even when the wind is blowing. I, I, I don't know. Pliny doesn't actually say that, but that I would assume that's what he means. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure how to take the wind thing either. If that's if that's something that we should focus on, or if perhaps you know something lost in translation here and through the ages that this is just kind of a standard way of describing an arrow being um, uh, fired with precision. You know. Yeah. Well, I guess it's the precision I wonder about. Like if he's just saying that <laughs> that like they can throw arrows. Sure, I, I guess that that doesn't seem controversial. Like they could throw sticks. If he's saying they could throw the arrow with the kind of like point forward precision that an archer can shoot an arrow, then I'm like, oh, whoa, I don't know about that. Yeah, he makes them sound like they're natural sharpshooters. And, and granted, most of this description is clearly describing elephants that have been trained to perform for the amusement of humans, but it's referencing combat, it's referencing war elephants as well. So, you know, part of me was wondering, it's like, did. Um, did they train? Did they actually train elephants to throw arrows? Did they have any kind of combat uh, initiative in mind here? Surely not. And also wondering, just is is this at all accurate? Can elephants do this? And uh, on the on that side of the uh, the issue here, uh, indeed, Asian elephants are still trained to throw darts at balloons as a spectacle. What? This is again something that you can look up multiple videos of online. Uh, I don't think there's any trickery involved in these. It's just they have they have trained the elephant, and the elephant will take a dart, fling it with its trunk, and hit a balloon that's affixed to like a wooden board or something. 
Hold on a second. I am, uh, I am taking a moment to watch this video. Okay. I took a moment to watch a video. I, I am simultaneously very impressed and it makes more sense now because at least in the video you shared, Rob, the elephant dart throwing, it is throwing a dart and hitting balloons and popping them, but it is not a straight on uh, line drive, like, you know, like an archer would shoot an arrow. It's more of a toss of a dart that happens yeah. to land point first on the balloon and hit it. Right. And, you know, ethical concerns over training elephants for amusement aside, yeah, it's pretty impressive. And I think it, it, it certainly speaks to the throwing ability of the elephants. It Again, like you said, the, the dart um, uh, throwing here is very much in line with other kind of throwing feats one sees from elephants, including some of these, uh, these, these incidents that have occurred uh, in the wild or sort of more or less in the wild. Yeah. Now, again, given the historical use of Asian elephants in warfare, you might well wonder if this ability was ever exploited for war. Because, yes, war elephants were a part of warfare in, in parts of the world. Um, they were typically used, though, as powerful bulldozing steeds and shock weapons. They could also serve as as a sort of a weapons platform of sorts. You know, you could have a, a, a place on top where not only is the elephant rider present, but perhaps someone uh, brandishing a spear or a bow of some, of some sort. And in some cases, not only did you have additional armor added to the, the elephant, uh, and I should, probably shouldn't even say additional armor, just armor, because again, you think of the, the skin of the elephant as being this kind of like natural armor. And, uh, you know, I think for the most part, we're uh, we're dealing with, uh, with with part of the animal that's far more sensitive than we think. So, yeah, there, there are numerous examples uh, that survive today of the sort of armor that we placed on the elephants. Sometimes that armor would be augmented with spikes or blades. And there were also special elephant swords that could be affixed to the tusks. I apologize. I can't remember where I read this, but I know I've read at least one historian's opinion before that elephants uh in ancient warfare would have been more useful for psychological impact than they were for direct like you know uh mechanical advantage on the battlefield and that most of what you could do with an elephant you could probably actually do better with just uh cavalry mounted on horses yeah that that lines up with a lot of what i've been reading here like we we should not think of the war elephant as some sort of super weapon uh it's it, it was a specialized uh weapon, a specialized use of the elephant and, and rider and various other weapons that needed support, uh, needed just the right situation to be useful. And, uh, and, and yeah, so there's a, there are a lot of ins and outs. You can't think of it again as this thing that, oh, once, once you introduce war elephants to the game, you've got it won. One of the books I was looking at here is um, a book by John M. Kistler titled War Elephants from 2006. And uh, in this, he mentions that uh, this uh, that some sources mention blades affixed to trunk armor as well. Though I I don't take that to mean I personally didn't take that to mean that you would actually have some sort of scenario where you would put a sword on the trunk into an elephant's trunk. I think that would be more like blades higher up on the the armor that's kind of protecting the the front of the elephant's face. Mm. But he this is a book that goes into depth on elephant warfare, probably more than a lot of you <laughs> really want to want to read. I mean, it's a very readable, very good book. But again, war is cruelty and elephant warfare is also just loaded with cruelty. There are a lot of elephant deaths that are described in this. You know, it gets into not only the gory particulars of waging war with elephants, but also waging war against elephants. 
And uh, but there are certainly accounts of, uh, that are mentioned in this book of enemy soldiers being crushed and thrown by the trunk of of the elephant, and in some cases um, it, uh, throwing the horse as well if it's encountering like a man mounted on a horse. Mm. Now, I, I looked through this book. I did not find any examples of war elephants actually throwing projectiles as, a, as an offensive uh, weapon tactic, though it is mentioned that Scipio forced his elephants into battle against Caesar's forces with rock slingers. So these would have been human rock slingers marching behind the elephants, pelting them with stones to get them to continue forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this would have been, uh, I think, 46 BCE. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what you encounter with projectiles and elephants are dealing with, in this case, making the elephants move forward into battle um, and, uh, and all of the, the, the grisly uh, realities that await them ahead. And then also you find plenty of discussions of projectiles being used against elephants, such as specialized like all-metal arrows and so forth, darts, um, caltrops, and other things that would be useful, fire uh, added to projectiles as well that would be useful in combating uh, elephants that are used by your enemy. Kistler also brings up an account from Plutarch's Life of Alexander, 4th century BCE, in which the Indian king Porus was said to ride an, a war elephant that was so loyal that at one point it softly kneels down and begins to draw the enemy darts out of the king's body uh, so that he continue, can continue fighting. And Kistler weighs in on this and says, quote, such stories are not preposterous. Elephants do form intimate bonds with their human riders and have been known to protect their human friends and may even die of grief when their partner is lost. Megasthenes, a contemporary of Alexander, attests to both. Wow. However, this, of course, is not dart-throwing, natural or otherwise. And Kistler makes no mention of elephants being trained to throw weapons. I think my, my take on this is, generally speaking, human armies capable of using war elephants are going to also have access to much better throwing projectile technology, such as a bow used by a human, even a sling used by a human, uh, catapults, and so forth. Using a war elephant to throw a rock would just be a misuse of the resource that you have there. Yeah, that is not what the elephants are best at. Yeah. Um, and uh, and he, Kistler gets into this a little bit as well. He's speaking directly about the sieges of Hannibal uh, here, but he says, uh, in talking about the limitations of the war elephant, quote, elephants do not make good siege weapons, but they do make excellent siege laborers. So again, a situation where um, at any given moment, an army that has elephants is going to have to use them where they are where they are most useful, uh, be it as a shock weapon or as just labor to help um, uh, operate the other weapons of war. So and when it comes to lobbing projectiles at your enemies, better, I would imagine, to have human archers atop or near elephants to handle the ranged weaponry and allow the elephants to do their thing, hopefully in a matter in a manner that advances the front line rather than recedes it. Because that's another thing you run into, like the use of the elephant on the battlefield. Um, it is kind of a, there's kind of a contained chaos to it. Uh, you definitely, uh, if you are the one using the elephants, you want them to, to keep going towards the enemy and not to, uh, uh, to, to panic and turn back on your own forces. Yeah. Still, there are certainly many accounts of war elephants grabbing, crushing, throwing human adversaries, sometimes off their mounts, and then in some cases inflicting such damage to the to the uh, the mount as well. Well, this is interesting because it raises sort of a third category of animal throwing behaviors, 
that we didn't really get to in the last episode. When we were talking about that study on octopuses, we made the distinction between throwing at and throwing away. So sometimes an octopus would uh, quote throw again to to remind you what the octopuses did was not purely by like grasping something in the arm and then rapidly extending the arm and releasing the object they would hold the object with their arms and then blast the object with their funnel or siphon with a jet of water to propel it through the water toward a target uh, or at least allegedly toward a target but the two categories of throwing they talked about in this paper were throwing at and throwing away so throwing away is just like you're trying to get something out of a certain place like cleaning out your den would be a throwing away behavior you're trying to get all of the the scallop shells out of there uh and and make a make a clean place for you to settle down or throwing at would be trying to hit a target here you could have I don't know what this would be. Uh, if you're like grabbing an adversary and throwing it, that's not really throwing at or throwing away. The object of the throwing is the object you're throwing, not an object you're trying to hit. But you're also not just trying to get it out of your way. You're trying to harm it by throwing it. Yeah, I think there's there's at least one account that Kistler shares, again, from, from ancient writers, where someone is thrown and then they hit a rock and it like breaks their back. But uh, that's it's hard to really weigh in on that. Like, was the elephant in this case throwing the human at the rock or did they, the elephant just throw this human aside right. and they happened to land on a rock? Right. That I wasn't alleging. Clear. Yeah, I wasn't alleging that the elephants like knew what they were doing in that type, type of throwing. Yeah. But I think we have one more example of an animal where that third category, the the you might say throwing into, where the the main object of the throwing is what happens to the object thrown, not the object it's thrown at. And it's not just trying to get the object out of your space. You're, you're trying to act upon the object by throwing it. And th this comes up with the mongoose. I was surprised by this. I, I don't really know much about the mongoose, uh, so I wasn't expecting it to, to be a, a projectile tool user or a projectile. Uh, maybe, not, maybe tool user is going a little too far, but a, a, a creature capable of throwing objects. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder, would this count as tool use or not? I don't know. We can talk about the details and then see what we think. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? 
That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School Podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There are different families of mongooses, about 34 species in total. They have strong rodent vibes. There's definitely a rodent energy to them. If you're unfamiliar with them, you happen to see them. If you happen to be in a region where you have mongooses around, you might think, oh, they're behaving much like rodents. They seem to be filling that that niche at the very least. But they're actually more closely related to hyenas and fossas. They are carnivores, and they're pretty opportunistic. So they, they feed on vertebrates, invertebrates, live prey, carry on. They're, they're all about figuring out how to go about getting their daily allotment of meat. What kind of puzzles do I need to solve to get my meat? What do I need to crawl into to get my meat? Uh, and and, uh, and this, is, this is the kind of area where uh, oftentimes we see this more with the omnivores, like uh, we talked about the raccoon before, this creature that, uh, that is savvy in its ability to, to find these different uh, forms of food. And here we see it with the carnivorous mongoose. Now, as they're trying to get at the meat, sometimes the thing about your meat, sometimes the meat is, you know, s- smeared on the side of the road or it's, uh, um, or it's uh, nice and soft and easy to tear into. But other times you'll find that the meat that you desire as a mongoose is encased. Uh, mm. This would be the case with something like a millipede. Right? There's, there's gooey stuff on the inside that you want to eat, but there's hard stuff on the outside. Uh, bir- uh, bird's eggs are another example. Hard on the outside delicious and liquidy in the middle. Beetles, balls of dung are also brought up in uh, some of the, 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 the sources I was looking at because the ball of dung might have, a, for instance, a, a beetle uh, inside of it and you want to get at it. But on the outside, you have perhaps this hardened dung. So how are you going to get the meat that is such so encased? Well, a reference that comes up on this question is a paper from 1967 by Thomas Eisner and Joseph A. Davis, a couple of biologists. I think one was affiliated with Cornell University, uh, and I think maybe another with the Bronx Zoo. But the paper is called Mongoose Throwing and Smashing Millipedes, published in the journal Science. Now, I actually had trouble finding the full text on this one, but fortunately, I was able to sort of piece it together with some sections quoted in books and a blog post I found uh, summarizing it by an archaeologist named Michael Haslam. 
But this study looked at a uh, relationship between the mongoose and a genus of African millipedes called Spherotherium. Spherotherium, you want to do the etymology on that? What does that mean? Ball beast. Now, compared to the tiny roly-polies or pill bugs that uh, we're used to here in the southern United States, Rob, these things, the spherotherium, are indeed beasts. Some species are very large, comparatively. I I found a picture of somebody holding one in their hand for scale, and this one looks to be about the size of an uncracked walnut. It's pretty big. They also have thick, tough plates of armor uh, compared to roly-polies or pill bugs. And as a side note, Uh, I just wanted to mention that our familiar roly-polies here are actually not millipedes at all. They are isopod crustaceans, terrestrial crustaceans that moved out of the sea to colonize land millions of years ago. Huh. I don't think I quite uh, realized that. Way to go, (laughs) roly-polies. But so, okay, to this study, the authors were doing some testing to see which predatory animals were able to to get the meat, like you're talking about, to, as Mick Jagger would say, get the meat, (laughs) to uh, uncase the spherotherium's tough outer defenses and get at what's inside. If it balls up, is this millipede basically invincible or can anybody crack the nut? Uh, Now, in other parts of this study, the spherotherium in ball mode survived attacks by a colony of harvester ants. They survived attacks by blue jays and uh, certain species of mice. But then, to read from the author's observations, quote, The unexpected occurred in tests with a banded mongoose, or mungos mungo. The predator responded instantly to the glomerid, and that's referring to the millipede here, the glomerid, sniffing it and rolling it about with the paws. It seized it in the jaws, biting upon it with sharp teeth, but the millipede was neither punctured nor crushed. Suddenly, the millipede was dropped from the jaws and grasped with the front paws. The mongoose backed against a rocky ledge in the cage, assumed a partially erect stance, and, with a motion so quick as to be barely perceptible, hurled the millipede backward between its legs, smashing it against the rocks. Fatally injured, with its shell broken and its body torn apart, the millipede was promptly eaten. This this is a, a great image. So. First of all, um, I, I, I don't have an answer for this question, but I do wonder about like how strong the bite of the, the mongoose is. Like maybe their, their, their bite strength isn't, uh, isn't as powerful as, uh, as would be required to say if you were going to actually bite down on this millipede and crunch it in your mouth. Or maybe it has to do with the size of the millipede. I don't know. I found some, some great images of, uh, of a mongoose gnawing on an egg, <laughs> trying to sort of get its, its, its horrible little uh, <laughs> mouth around the egg. And uh, I don't know, it might, it, in, in this case, perhaps the, the mongoose is able to actually bite through that egg and crack it. Certainly an egg is different uh, than, uh, than a hardened uh, large millipede. But like I say, they have been observed to, to take eggs and strike them or throw them as well. So I don't know. My second uh, question that came up, because I, I was looking at some different sources, but I came across similar descriptions and I was trying to picture it. And I was like, am I picturing this right? Is this a granny shot? Is this, is this like the granny shot with the, with the bat? Well, I guess it's, wait, no, the granny shot is when you or use your arms as a pendulum between your legs and throw the ball. What is it called when you project the ball back between your legs? It's a reverse granny shot. Okay. It's reverse granny shot. Okay. <laughs> But yes, that's what's going on here. Uh, if you want to picture it, the mongoose 
the banded mongoose here is it's like sort of standing with its legs apart and then picking up the millipede with its forepaws and then leaning over and throwing the millipede backwards between its legs to smash it against a rock behind it. And you included for me a couple of wonderful illustrations to drive home how this works. I think these illustrations are actually from the original paper, but they were uh, they were included in that blog post I, I referenced by uh, Haslam. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're quite amusing. We were talking before the recording about the uh, in, in the first shot, uh, we see this uh, this this uh, mongoose clearly uh, thoughtful about its task, concentrating on what it's doing. Millipede grasp between its 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 paws, uh, rock behind it, and then in the next picture, bam! It has thrown the millipede. The millipede is in flight back between the creature's legs, and he's just kind of looking at us, the viewers. <laughs> this is occurring. Yeah, yeah, making sort of shameful eye contact with the illustrator. But but even this 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 illustration also drives home that like this is a creature that has like a a, a tail. Um, its uh, its legs are not nearly as long as human legs, so it seems like a, a very it's a precision shot. There's nothing like clumsy about this. Well, I wonder why the throwing happens behind the animal instead of in front of it. So yeah, it would it has to get past the legs and the tail to do this. But since the the behavior has evolved this way, there must be a an advantage to the to the rearward throwing, right? Like maybe the animal can get more momentum throwing in that direction than it could throwing forward. I, I'm not sure. Well, it, what it reminds me of is digging behavior, um, mm. and uh, and the mongoose is certainly a creature that that, that I imagine is going to dig around for things. I mean, maybe not actual burrowing behavior, perhaps, but we're talking about scratching around in the dirt, going after, say, millipedes, small bugs, etc. And you know, what is the we can sort of imagine the the steps between basic digging, throwing the dirt back between your rear legs, and then launching small creatures backwards as well and making them hit a rock wall or something. Hmm, yeah, okay. Basic mongoose technology, either way, I guess. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, uh, so uh, apparently for the banded mongoose, picking up and throwing food is part of their normal behavior. This wasn't just like a one-off weird thing that happened in this zoo environment. It is something mm -hmm. that has been observed in the wild, and it's part of a behavioral repertoire that may, in fact, be passed on through a kind of teaching and observation between older mm. mongooses and younger ones rather than strictly through uh, uh, inborn instinct. Yeah, fascinating. Um, I was looking around at it for, for various videos of this, and I, I did find a number of videos showing them with different uh, encased foods that, that do look more like a striking as opposed to a throwing. But I guess one can imagine that these would be sort of related, right? Especially mm. if the, the striking... If I'm remembering correctly from the videos I was looking at, some of the strikings are kind of the same initial movement instead of launching the encased food back between the legs, though, bringing it down straight onto the ground or onto some sort of rocky surface. Mm. Good job, mongoose. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of the, the dropping techniques that have been linked to other um, uh, organisms that are capable of flight. You know, if you have something like, uh, I think the, um, uh, you know, you have cases where... Uh, uh, a lammergeier may drop uh, bones to shatter on rocks far below. They're able to use a gravity assist on that act. But if you're just a mongoose, well, you don't have gravity like that. You can't very well soar up into the sky and then drop it. You've got to hurl it instead. Mm, yeah. 
I also like that this in this case, the animal is throwing the object behind them, just like Deucalion and Pyrrha. Yeah. I think there's that's where the comparison stops, though. I, I don't see how the millipede really becomes the new generation of mongooses. Well, we just don't we don't have much insight into the religious lives of, of the mongoose. It's true. All right. Well, I think that does it for part two. Uh, but hey, should we continue looking uh, at animal throwing behaviors in, in a part three? Maybe. Yeah, maybe so. I know there's there's certainly a lot in the primate world. And we kind of skipped over that because on one hand, primates throwing things, that's it's obvious like, on, on top of the various uh, non-human primate examples. We know that, of course, humans are are the greatest throwers on earth um so, but they're the, the, the but not to take away from the the primate world uh the, the larger primate world though because there are some amazing examples of the use of projectiles and uh, the selection of projectiles and even the um, the storing of projectiles for later use so there's a lot of interesting stuff there that we get into we could also uh, get into uh how it plays into uh, human evolution and so forth so if if uh, listeners want more animals throwing stuff, we can certainly uh, put together some more episodes. Oh, and by the way, I wanted to mention this uh, this earlier and I forgot, but um, John M. Kistler, who wrote the book on war elephants, also wrote a historical fiction novel titled Elephant Lord, set during the Second Punic War. Uh, and I looked at this. Uh, I didn't pick it up yet, but I saw that you can get it on Kindle. Uh, it looks pretty interesting. Hmm. I was I was trying to ponder, like, maybe this is a better way to get my... Um, to scratch the itch of curiosity over, over um, you know, all the details of, of elephant warfare. Maybe if it's in a, within a fictional shape, it'll be kinder somehow. I don't know. All right. All right, so we're closing it up there. But uh, yeah, write in. Let us know what you think. If you want to hear more episodes about animals throwing stuff, be sure to let us know. Perhaps you have examples from the animal world that we didn't touch on that you'd like to bring up. Perhaps you just have observations of elephants or the mongoose that you would like to share. It doesn't have to be directed directly related to throwing things, uh, but maybe you do have those experiences you would like to, uh, to point out to us. If so, write in. We'd love to hear from you. Just a reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a science podcast with core episodes publishing on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Mondays, we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form monster fact or artifact episode. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film on weird house cinema huge thanks to our audio producer max williams if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. 
The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.